You're listening to the Child Safeguarding Podcast by Pointing Consulting and Advisory. Hello and welcome back to the Child Safeguarding Podcast. I'm going to do something a little bit different at the top. I'm going to do the plug at the top of the episode for a change. So PCA is looking to deliver more training sessions in the second half of this year, which is good news for podcast listeners. Uh, Organisations that book and pay for any of PCA's standard training sessions before the end of 2021 and mention this promotion will receive 10% off the cost of in-person training and 15% off for virtual training. The sessions can be delivered in 2022, but they must be confirmed and paid before the end of 2021. So head to pointingconsulting.xyz for training session details and to book. So that's 10% off for in-person sessions and 15% off virtual sessions. Just for telling PCA you listened to the podcast and heard about the promotion on the Child Safeguarding Podcast. Now let's get into the episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Child Safeguarding Podcast by PCA. I'm your host, Brad Pointing, and our guest today is Suzanne Murray. Suzanne is a safeguarding and child protection consultant at Fairchild Safeguarding based in the UK. So welcome along, Suzanne. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak with you this morning. Oh, not a problem. I'm I'm really excited for our chat because you're joining me from the UK, um, which is is always good to get international guests coming in. Um, But we're not just going to talk about sort of safeguarding in the context of the United Kingdom uh, because you work with clients outside of the UK as well, which includes working with clients here in Australia. Um, but we'll, we'll get into a bit more of that detail a little bit later on, though. I think, uh, Suzanne, probably the best thing to do to start off today is if you can tell us a bit about yourself uh, and how you came to start Fairchild Safeguarding. Thank you. Yes, uh, I think the most important thing to say to people is that I'm uh, an educator. Mm-hmm. And I've spent most of my working life working in schools, uh, originally here in, in the UK, where I worked in secondary school education, uh, although I have previous experience of working in early year settings. And I really thought that that was going to be my destiny for life. I was the person in schools who was responsible for child protection or child safety, known as a designated safeguarding lead. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I always was very interested in working with vulnerable children uh, and was the person who would support both the student and the families through some very um, significant crisis uh, around this particular area. In 2014, I left full time education, uh, started to work in the world of consultancy, but again, originally thought that I would work around school improvement. Mm My focus was around inclusion, the right for every child to have a unique and varied experience in the school environment. However, I was given the opportunity to be part of a safeguarding specialist team who began to work on school reviews around the world in the international context. That was a a wonderful experience for me. I went from teaching in an inner city state comprehensive school to being down in South America, out in Vietnam, and really looking at how schools around the world were implementing international and UK standards. And this all came on the back of the work that uh, happened as a result of the William Vahey case out of South Bank in in London, and was working alongside the Council of International Schools, where the International Task Force had formed to try and address some of the gaps in the 
that provision. Mm-hmm. Uh, I then uh, took a step to become a deputy head of school in the International School of Ho Chi Minh City uh, with a responsibility for implementing safeguarding standards into the, 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 the school at the time. As a result of the two years of work I did there, uh, I was uh, taken by Cognita, who is a, a leading international education group and became the safeguarding manager for all of the Cognita schools across Asia. That gave me the opportunity to, I suppose, really shape my philosophy around safeguarding child protection and child safety, and to really look at how you, uh, the, 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 the approach you need to take to embed safeguarding standards, often in countries where there's very little statutory provision in place. Yeah, yeah. Quite a journey and then, um, the world was hit by a pandemic and uh, I had begun to uh, miss my family. Uh, my children work and are based in London. I began to feel that the distance was perhaps too significant for me at the time. And I decided to uh, return back to the UK and to start my own company. And in November, I launched Fairchild Safeguarding to work alongside both national and international education settings, not just schools, but education settings and learning settings to help to shape this particular agenda. Awesome. Wow, that is an awesome story. And when you say November, do you mean November 2020, 2019? 2020, November 2020. So it's very much in its infancy. Mm. Yes, and and 2020, the the best year on record to start a business. That must have been (laughs) daunting. (laughs) Wow. Um, you also mentioned um, back a little bit talking about uh, a specific role, the the designated safeguarding lead. Um, yeah. That's something that we don't have here in Australia, so it, it probably would be beneficial if you could provide a little bit more information about what that what that role specifically is in the UK. Yeah, having done a little bit of work with uh, a school in Australia, I think the closest uh, the closest role that you have are are child safety officers. Mm-hmm who would resume responsibility in schools for for, uh, mandatory reporting and for um, managing cases with children who who perhaps are are, experiencing abuse or are suffering from mental health and wellbeing issues, et cetera. So a designated safeguarding lead in the UK is simply a term used for somebody who has the training, the responsibility and accountability and the skill set needed to manage all areas of the safeguarding agenda, including mandatory child protection reporting. Yeah, and it's a, a statutory requirement to for certain organisations to have that specific job function, isn't it? That's right. It's a statutory responsibility in education settings mm-hmm. for uh, for each education to setting setting to have a named person. That's yeah. correct. Uh, in large organisations, uh, there may be more than one. Mm-hmm. There may be a sectional approach. So if you have a junior school and a senior school, there may be two. Um, they should be somebody from the leadership because they have to be a person who has enough, I suppose, influence to make change within the organization as and when necessary. Yeah. And um, thinking then about that work you were doing with the international schools, particularly in um, when you're working in, in Asia in particular, um, 
you were talking there about implementing child safeguarding standards and, and uh, working back within sort of the UK model. So in, in Australia, we have the National Principles for Child Safe Organisations and we also have the Child Safe Standards, which came from the Royal Commission. Um, do you, or I guess, what sort of model uh, or where does that come from for the work you were doing with those schools? What's that sort of, sort of I'll phrase the question really poorly. <laughs> I might try and do that again. Um, no, I think I know. I think I know what you mean. Yep. So, so you're absolutely right. So you're absolutely right. So what I tend to do with my work is uh, there are really in any given situation three sets of standards that you are looking at. You are taking. I take the UK standards. We are very much a leading model uh, around this particular area. I would then look to the international safeguarding standards particularly referencing the work from the International Task Force, both for child safety, child protection, but also for safer recruitment. And then lastly, I would take the international, the standards from the country that I am working in. So in my recent work in Australia, yes, I uh, mapped the principles uh, from Australia against the criteria that I use in a review model. And then thinking specifically about the work that you do now through Fair Child Safeguarding, mm -hmm. uh, what are those sort of what are the specific services that you offer for the clients that you work with? The services offered are, are very varied. And so I suppose the first thing I do is uh, when approached is I have a um, I have a 30 minute uh, or sometimes longer um, free consultation to try and assess need to try and find out exactly what are the requirements of the organization who have approached me. Often um, organizations will want to do a review or, or some people would use the term an audit. Mm -hmm. Audit always to me sounds financial. It sounds very serious. <laughs> Whereas a review, a review is very much where I uh, analyze and then map the current position for a school, their data, their policies and procedures and practice. And I map that against a, a wide ranging list of criteria in 11 different areas um, and that's this sort of holistic view to safeguarding yes the child safety or child protection pieces is in there from a mandatory reporting but it's very extensive across what i do so people often like to look at where they are mm -hmm. yeah uh, first and foremost uh, some organizations will approach me to do some uh, one-off piece of work such as a policy review they might want to take their child protection, child safety policies and review them and make sure that they're fit for purpose, both for the statutory requirements, but also for the organization. I offer uh, training at different uh, different levels, again, school, school or organization dependent. Uh, so I recently trained uh, for, did a piece of training for a gymnastics club, training all their coaches, all their administrators and all their board members around what a culture of care looks like. I also, along that piece, offer the development of a webinar. Sometimes an organization wants to use a media piece to put out a message, to really articulate a clear vision of what keeping children safe looks like in their organization. And therefore I would work with them alongside of their own organization's mission, vision, purpose to, to shape a webinar which can be shared with their wider community. I have a real uh, strong um, 
alignment and belief in the value of really good recruitment practices mm. and also then the implementation of safer recruitment and a single central record documentation piece supported by training, particularly training around offender behavior mm -hmm. and the recognition of offending behaviors in school. Uh, I offer case crisis and allegation management piece so that if a school or an organization has a live case and they want to have some independent advice and guidance around that, or they simply want uh, me to lead uh, the the uh, investigation or the review or inquiry around that, then I can also offer that. Finally, there's been a, a statutory change here in the UK, uh, which I'm anxious to broaden out across my international work, and that is the requirement for formal supervision of these designated safeguarding leads or these child safety officers in school. We have begun to recognize that the good practice used in the world of social work, for instance, mm -hmm. where formal supervision is part of their, their support network, really, um, is also required in schools. Particularly, we found that when working in countries where there are little or no services and where schools and organizations have to build in-house support, we find that adults are actually dealing with quite traumatic situations, yeah. often in isolation. And therefore, I offer the opportunity to have a, um, a rigorous but formal supervision piece where somebody can check in on a regular basis. Awesome. I think that, yeah, that's really valuable. I didn't know that they'd um, uh, changed the, the, the legislation there to actually make that a requirement that's really yeah cool. it's it's um it's actually uh whilst it's uh going it's not currently changed in law it's part it forms part of what we call our ofsted requirements okay. which is the government body inspectorate body sure and so now when when uh, ofsted goes into schools they will ask the question who's supporting your staff and it's very much linked to there's a huge uh, agenda at the moment around staff well-being Mm -hmm. And about looking after your staff, we, we often talk about the oxygen mass theory, you know, look after your staff so they can look after the children so they can reach their potential philosophy yeah. and, and supervision fits in there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's one of the things that I talk about in some of the training I deliver as well is that it's it's a very big ask to ask the, your, your staff and volunteers and the adults to keep the children safe <clears throat> if those adults don't actually feel safe themselves in the same environment. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, um, and then I guess bringing our focus to look at um, the work that you have been doing here in Australia, I understand you have been working with a, uh, a private school here in Australia. Are you able to talk about the, the project that you were doing with them? And I guess feel free to share as much or as little information as, you, as you're able to do there. Uh, sure, yes, I am actually uh, able to share the work that I have done. Um, I suppose really when I look at the work that I do, I pretty much believe myself to be a change management mm -hmm. uh, consultant. So we're looking to move learning environments, et cetera, from, from that compliance piece onto that culture of care, which I talk about and which I will talk about today. Yep. Um, I, had, I had been working uh, as the safeguarding manager of Cognita uh, one of the schools uh, that I supported was the Australian International School in Singapore. Mm -hmm. um, 
And it was there that I had the pleasure of working with uh, Kaylee Aharon, who was the head of secondary school uh, there. We worked really closely together. I supported her team with safeguarding work and also with case management. And she had uh, been appointed to be principal of the uh, Penrose College in Perth. Uh, and as principal, she uh, approached me uh, before she actually went in to have discussions with herself and with the board lead to discuss uh, how I could support her in her transition into the new role. Yeah. Um, we one of the things that she said was that the college had excellent safeguarding policies and procedures in place. But as a new principal, she worked with me because it allowed her to reflect on those policies and then to focus on ongoing growth and development. Her drive is to be constantly pursuing excellence and continuous improvement. The reason it works so well, I think, is that Kalia is really does believe in my philosophy. Mm -hmm. And that is this philosophy around a culture of care, which aligns three key areas that you find within a school or learning organization. And that is the pastoral care that teachers, form teachers and other adults take with children, well-being, including mental health and well-being, and then the child safety piece. And we place these under this umbrella term of a culture of care. The college already had an outstanding reputation and it was renowned for the quality of provision and support and interventions. And particularly when I spoke to parents, particularly outstanding boarding provision for a small number of girls in that organization. However, when you're a new leader, it's really great to get a temperature check. <laughs> yeah. It really is. It allows them to really quickly secure that snapshot of current position. It allowed Kalia then to celebrate good practice and then to build on positive relationships so that she could then move forward in terms of that outstanding practice that she is seeking to achieve. I think it gave the staff the opportunity to reflect and consider on what they were doing mm -hmm. and then what they could do better. Often organizations do things in a certain way because there's a historical piece and it's a bit like, well, we've always done it like that here. Yeah. Some of those, some of those traditions and those, um, I suppose those ingrained way of working are, can be very beneficial. But I also think that a fresh pair of eyes, is really useful in those situations to begin to uh, see things differently, perhaps ask the more, you know, why, when, where, what, and how. And, and it also then allows them to take a step back, breathe, and then move on. Um, I think for me, the, the, the most exciting moment of the whole piece of work I did was I was interviewing a group of teenagers, obviously all on, on a, a virtual platform. Uh, we had a wonderful, rich, diverse conversation with a group of very articulate young people. And as I finished the conversation, they thought I had gone <laughs> and I hadn't. Yeah. And so and so one young lady said, that was epic. <laughs> and I and I just was so warmed by the enthusiasm uh, enthusiasm for the conversation. It was it was wonderful. 
yeah. they were absolutely ripe and up for the for, for the conversation and I, I i guess sort of re- reflecting what you're saying there that um something that we talk about a lot is the value of the participation of children and young people in um, how we keep them safe in including them in that in actually like listening to them sharing um, hearing their voices hearing their views and all those sorts of things it's it's the right of children to actually be able to do that so it's awesome to hear that that school was already um, working in ways to actually support that when you've when you've been able to come in and be part of that as well that's really good news um what I guess what were some of the 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 big biggest sort of learnings that you had um, working with that client and um, how were they around sort of embracing sort of things around change that you might have been suggesting? Uh, oh, they're very open to to change, very definitely. Um, you know, it, it, a review we reviewed eleven different areas of the school, everything from the mandatory reporting. Um, and I think in Australia, one of, certainly in the, in the work that I did, one of the things that came through very strongly is the, is the um, deep understanding about mandatory reporting, the deep understanding around the principles, um, but also nearly um, at times a default to that. Mm-hmm. Because it's so it's so understood, it, it's very easy then to to see that as a front runner, I suppose. Um, when actually we know uh, from a safeguarding perspective that other uh, issues and concerns for young people can be, um, you know, trending if that if that's the right word. So if we look at the results of the pandemic, for instance. Um, and not speaking to this particular work in one college, but globally, yeah. Yeah. there has been an increase in things like domestic violence, for instance. You know, uh, that domestic violence falls under the adverse childhood experience, the ACEs pieces of work that we do. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we have to, to be um, fluid in our responses to things that are happening on the ground. For instance, we know that... Um, that there's been a, a real um, drive because of the pandemic again for um, you know grooming behaviours and concerning adult behaviours to go online. Yeah. At the same time as all the children went online, and so we end up with a slightly um, a shift in focus. Yeah. I, I think the biggest learning for me is that whenever I talk to children and I've just spent some time, I've been in six schools in the last three weeks here in the UK. And um, I think one of the biggest things is that often we think that we are responding to children's need, Mm -hmm. but we haven't quite asked them. And we're responding as to what we as adults think are the children's need. Yeah. Right. And so in this particular school, when I asked the little ones and bearing in mind that I'm interviewing children from age four to age 10 over a virtual platform with them sat on a carpet, when I gave them, um, you know, I always give children a, a magic wand. They can make a wish if they were to change one thing, what would it be and why? Um, and, and a couple of the kids said that one of the things that, that frightened them or that concerned them was when they had to practice things like lockdown. Mm-hmm. Now, again, we're doing lockdown and schools are doing lockdowns for all the right reasons. 
but sometimes we might miss the perception of children because we haven't positioned it well. Yeah, I got a text message uh, from my child's school um, just uh, sometime last week, I think it was, letting me know that, that they'd practiced one of their lockdowns or emergency drills. I can't remember which one it is, but yeah, that's always the first thing that, that I always go to, the first place I go to when I read that text message of, okay, great, it says that um, it went well and, and all the kids are happy and safe, but yeah, what was the actual process that, that they went through in each of the classrooms after that to actually debrief and talk about and actually, did they actually check in to make sure the children are actually feeling safe after that or if they just, yeah, assumed that they are. Um, so then, yeah, when my child comes home, then, then I do some of that work and I jump back into sort of my practitioner role <laughs> with my own child, which she can tell what I'm doing as well. Um, she's cottoned on to, to what I'm actually doing in those cases and she'll ask me to stop sometimes and I, I listen to her and, and I follow that direction from her as well. Um, and yeah, and that, that was some of the research that came through with the Royal Commission that we had over here as well was around children's perceptions of safety, uh, particularly within institutional settings uh, and uncovering the, that idea of being safe and feeling safe and, and being disconnected, not necessarily um, being related to each other. So we can definitely, as adults looking after children, we can, we can make sure the children are being safe. We can put the rules around them. We can... Um, shape the environments the, however we think they need to be in order to be safe but we can't actually know if the children feel safe without talking to them and without actually hearing their views and, and what they'd like to see happen and those sorts of things hmm. there's a there's a big shift now to try to broaden the opportunities for student voice in schools you know, I go into learning or, uh, environments or organizations and they will be able to tell me that they have a student council body. But often when you um, when you scratch the surface of those things in some organizations, you can find that they are either pretty operational drives mm -hmm. or, or they're pretty superficial. You know, the kids want to be able to have, you know, chips on Friday. Yeah. And uh, and actually what we're talking about in the in the safeguarding world is using uh, views to to impact change mm -hmm. and to be a really strong uh, voice uh, along alongside of it to wake up moments i suppose for me or or maybe not so much a wake up but um, a confirmation of my views uh, in some school conversations in the uk recently were two things when we talk about safety we um we can we can very quickly go to you know whether it's peer-on-peer -peer abuse or concerning adult behaviors or or those sorts of management things but actually for for uh some of the children uh one person said actually i want to feel safe in the classroom so that i can be myself and speak up without fear of comment or ridicule or intimidation from somebody else. It was nothing to do with being safe. It was about having a safe environment where they could express themselves in a learning environment without feeling that they were being judged in some way. Mm. And, and the second one, which was more, I suppose, show-stopping for me, and I don't know whether it is the same in, in the majority of the schools in Australia and New Zealand, but we have a, 
um, a very sort of forensic data management piece now supporting schools and we are constantly looking to align data against individual students and um, when I invite young people to come and talk to me I say to the to the schools and colleges please don't give me all your you know good kids I want I want some kids <laughs> who are perhaps less less engaged mm -hmm. who are hard to reach or who are vulnerable and so I was duly presented with two 15-year-old boys who came ready to have the conversation, but I think they surprised even themselves because one of the things he said, one of these young people said was, because of the data, which is on the teacher's screen, mm -hmm. which tells them everything that I have done wrong, my attendance level, my academic levels, my times where I have been maybe you know, suspended or removed from the school, they have formed a view of me before they meet me. So he said, I am starting from a different basis than others. Absolutely. And before, and before he said, anything that I do, I am not to 10 instantly and find myself outside the door. Whereas others can behave in the same or similar way and the escalation is not as rapid. Mm. And it's so true. Absolutely. It is human nature to look at the data in front of you and to make a judgment. And this is why when I do some, some of my training, I look very much at unconscious bias. It's huge. We, we form these opinions of these young people before we give them a chance to allow us to get to know them mm. and and that's a real call out to the staff and schools to be aware that data is powerful both positively and negatively yeah i'm instantly reminded of some of my own high school experiences but we won't go into um into too much detail there. yeah um, yeah, me, me too. Me too. And I was educated by the nuns. So <laughs> I was educated in a convent. So yeah. Um, yeah, but yeah, absolutely. If you've got a complete profile like that on your computer screen, um, then you're, yeah, you've got an opinion before you've even met that child. Definitely. Wow. Um, going back to the, the school that you worked with here in Perth, um, has what's what's sort of next for them? What are they doing now? Because I think you finished the project. You finished working with them for now, at least. Um, so what are they? Yes, doing? I have. Yes, I have. And, uh, you know, it is still early stages in terms of our professional relationship. They are using my uh, review document um, to inform a school action plan or development plan, which will then be, um, we'll call out sort of short, medium and long term uh, changes or goals, uh, which is which is how it should work. And actually what it does you know, big ships turn slowly. Mm -hmm. And so if you are looking for sustained practice, particularly under a new leadership, um, you know, you, you perhaps look at the things what we, you would call quick wins, the things that perhaps need a, a tweak or a change, uh, a review often um, invokes or triggers excitements and passion with people who wanted to do things for a while and maybe, maybe they haven't had the opportunities or lockdown has got in the way. Uh, and so they will begin to look at what they they want to do over those short term, medium and long term 
changes, but also then be in a position to align those to resources and budget, because of course those things have to to happen too. Uh, I think the the second piece of work that we have begun to discuss is perhaps looking more forensically at how how we um, view the the recruitment. Not that there is um, anything wrong with the recruitment process at all, but looking at broadening the understanding of offenders behavior what does that look like around low-level concerns and, and self-reporting in a school yeah awesome but none yeah. of this none of this has been confirmed yet sure sure <laughs> um but yeah it's good that those conversations are, are ongoing i think um through the work that i'm i'm doing with my clients it's, it's always a big part of what i sort of the message that i'm getting across is how are you going to do this work once i'm gone because that's that should be the goal. You shouldn't be reliant on an external consultant to make sure you're you're able to do this. So if you are working, and this is one of the things I, I say to um, potential clients or, or sort of anyone having conversations with, that if you are looking to get some help from an external safeguarded consultant, um, there needs to be an exit strategy for that consultant in part of the, the work that they do, uh, or else yeah. potentially your interests are not the highest priority <laughs> um, for, for the work that they're doing there. Um, but yeah, that doesn't mean obviously that you can't then go on to, to do second projects and, and further that work and still get further involvement, but it should always be about how can we establish that sort of self-sufficiency and being able to do this work. Absolutely. And, and it varies. So as you say, some, some organizations and, uh, you know, Kelly and I haven't had an opportunity to speak, but I'm sure, um, you know, we'll, we'll have those conversations. Whereas I'm working with somebody here in the UK who's already said, we want you to have an ongoing professional relationship with us. We want you to support the teams and to model what this looks like. Um, but but you're right. I mean, we call it the 100-day strategy because your first day in an organization should be the first day of your leaving strategy <laughs> because you are building capacity. Uh, and, and what do you think other comparable organizations to, to that school in Perth um, can learn from the work that you've done with, with them? And what opportunities do you think have been created for those other sorts of organizations? I think that, um, I think that the major uh, learning for organizations is, for me, is, is not to be fearful of undertaking a piece of work like this. Mm -hmm. um, large organizations or very well-established reputable schools, for instance, may feel that by doing this piece of work it portrays an image that there's something wrong yeah and that could not be further from the truth i regularly refer to what i call courageous leadership when i'm talking about child safety and and safeguarding because no organization is perfect no organization has everything in place because the pace of change is too rapid you know i consider myself to be uh, you know very experienced and competent in this world but in the world of cyber security for instance i would still seek support mm -hmm. from cyber security specialists who know way more about the latest app or the latest challenge out there than i do and so for those organizations, I would say, be open to temperature check, be open to scrutiny and to ensure that there is a quality assurance piece in there so that 
you can not only state where you are on this journey, but evidence it. I Schools will say to me, we're a good school. We're a safe school. And I say, that's great. Show me. How do I know? Yeah. And ha- more, much more importantly, how do you know? How do your board know? And how do your parents and students know? And so I think that, um, you know, it's a great opportunity to call out Kaylee's brave bravery because she went into an organization as a new leader and said, I believe this is the right thing to do. And I think this is a good starting point for our journey. And I would invite others to do the same. And I think that be, by appointing somebody like myself, who isn't Australian, who has a global lens, and who works across different organizations. Uh, I've done a lot of work in Vietnam, you know, and, and they're on a journey of change as a country. Mm-hmm. All that richness helps organizations to look at where they are. And I think finally, and you will uh, know about this because of your own background, there's a, there's a lot of safeguarding experts out there, and there's a lot mm-hmm. of people who, who call themselves safeguarding experts out there. And they all come from different fields, different experiences. Some come from, you know, police, some come from social services or child protection services, etc. But I bring a depth of understanding around the operation of schools when I work with those schools and I understand how they operate. And therefore, I will reassure and would like to take the opportunity to reassure these organizations that When I work, my advice has to be practical and it has to be implemented in a way that doesn't disrupt the day-to-day operations of the organization. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Mm. Just becomes a tick box exercise. So it's policy and practice. Awesome. Um, Yeah, and that resonates with the conversation I was just having just yesterday, actually, with with a client around... um, the idea of you know the work that we're doing the intention of of what i'm doing to help them should not be stopping them from doing their sort of core business from being able to run their activities with children yeah, and those sorts business, of things yeah if that's the message that that they're picking up from what i'm saying um there's a there's a problem there that needs to be addressed either i'm not communicating very well which mm-hmm. can definitely happen um or there's there's some pretty significant risks that or, or issues that actually need to be addressed but um yeah, the, the intention is to, uh, when, when working with clients, is to support them to do the work that they already do, but to make sure it's being done in a way which is providing for the well-being and welfare of children while they do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully, we're not very often giving advice that, that is basically saying, you need to stop doing this particular activity or you need to stop working with children in this particular way or something. Sometimes we definitely need to if they are working in incredibly risky ways. Um, but yeah, the intention is always to support them to be able to do what they do and just make sure that the children are safe while they do it. Absolutely. I mean, an area that's really important in this and that, again, is a very specialist area is, is transport and the transport mm-hmm. of children. Yep. And, and that can be, you know, whether it's in and out of school or on trips and visits or whether it's off to sporting events and organizations. And so when I worked in Hong Kong um, and one of the recommendations for it for this was that we would have 
uh, both a background check system in place for all drivers and as they call them aunties who are the support staff on the buses um, uh, but we had a number of requirements and the bus company simply said no mm-hmm. we we meet hong kong statutory requirements and therefore we're not prepared to meet yours now a school was then faced with a situation where they could say okay we're not using you as a bus company but there wasn't any more uh, and, and then and then secondly you, you had to then switch to be solution focused hmm. which is that's our end goal how do we bring them on a journey of change while supporting their understanding and what do we do in the interim from a risk assessment piece Wow, just going to time. Um, we will start start to sort of shift to um, to move into that sort of second phase of the the podcast that um, that we always do. So as we start to close out, I end the podcast by asking every guest the same two questions. And as the podcast continues, I'm building up quite a lot of advice and information, which uh, I'm starting to get some feedback from listeners now that they're finding really useful, which is awesome. Um, so the first question that I ask everyone is if you could share one piece of advice or knowledge for organizations which are only just beginning their child safe organizations journey, what would it be? Um, okay, I think for me, it is uh, for a, a, an organization to define their moral purpose, mm-hmm. to clearly work with stakeholders to align their uh, values and their vision for keeping children safe, to really know why they're doing what they're doing. And in that then to be um, uncompromising in their drive towards standards around keeping children safe. I think once you define your purpose, it then becomes easier to sell a vision. Mm-hmm. It by by as I said, you know, big ships turn slowly, and so to understand that the move to excellence in safeguarding, uh, you know, is is a journey, and it's changing all the time because the challenges change all the time, and so whilst a review might be an opportunity for or viewed as a, a chance to see what's missing, but it also can be an ideal forum to celebrate to the, the, the good things that are going on. And then, you know, to have those opportunities to have conversations with students and parents and the wider community. Uh, when working in Vietnam, uh, I had taken over and was working on the safeguarding agenda and very quickly people were tiring of the word and the focus on safeguarding. And so I could feel a kind of nearly a visible groan at times. Oh, here mm-hmm. we go again, it's the safeguarding piece. <laughs> and so what I did was 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 took a step back. And so working on a collaborative document during a piece of training time for staff, I simply asked them the question to write into a collaborative document what they felt they did currently in their role, which kept children safe. And it just set this massive explosion of content. Yeah. Where suddenly everybody went, oh, yeah, I do that and I do that. And, and oh, yeah, do you remember we did that? And suddenly we captured all of this stuff. And I was able to say, look at what we do. Now, what do we do next? Mm. Wow, that's awesome. 
Uh, and then what about for parents and carers? What do you think is important for parents and carers to know about keeping children safe in organisations and institutions? I think this is a really, really important question because, again, I, I, I think that at times we, um, we don't seek enough parent input into what we do. But for me, uh, the challenge is to uh, communicate the message in a way that parents feel it resonates with them. When you use the term child safety, it invokes the mama or papa bear instinct <laughs> where parents will feel, well, this isn't relevant to me because I keep my child safe and I'm good at this and, and therefore I've, I've got this. Mm -hmm. But actually, um, we really must have uh, parents fully understand the it could happen here message. Uh, by doing this and by getting out some of the the statistics around abuse, you know, we look at 90% of over 90% of abuse happens within the family or or a close friend network. Uh, over 30% of sexual abuse is peer on peer abuse and often with people that they know in mm -hmm. those um, and find themselves in those relationships. So we really have to uh, educate parents to understand the reality. Um, they must know and understand the challenges that they face in 2021 and not view the world through their own education or their own lens because it's very, very different. Uh, children face different challenges. The impact on social media, on behaviour or self-confidence or image, the increase in self-harm and suicide ideation, for instance, and the frequency and availability of sexualized images and pornographic material means that our children are becoming quite desensitized to abuse and abusive relationships. And so we have to get parents to see the world through the eyes of the child. And we have to ask parents to learn to listen, to understand, but not to overreact mm -hmm. to this. You know, knowledge is power and with increased understanding for all, uh, we hope that we manage the issues with that positive input and with positive relationships with people who care with children. Suzanne, if people want to learn more about you or get in contact, uh, how can they do that? What's the best way to do that? If people would like to check out my website, they can find me at www.fcsafeguarding.com. And all the information about not only the services that I offer, but really my philosophy uh, and how I have shaped my work, my commitment to keeping children safe, etc. You will find on there. Uh, you will also find my email address mm -hmm. so that you can contact me via email. Uh, my personal phone number is also on there. However, because of, you know, time differences, country differences, it's probably best to send me a, a, an email or link on, click on the link in the website and then I can set up a virtual conversation with anyone who wants to speak with me. Awesome, thank you. And I'll put all those details in the, um, the podcast notes for people to be able to find those as well. That would be wonderful. I do offer a, what, what we call a no commitment conversation. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's, it's very useful to just have that 30 minute conversation to kind of, um, feel for what the needs are and, and I'm very uh, open to saying I'm not the person you need you're someone else or actually this sounds really good and, I, and I'd welcome to take it forward so yeah 
That would be yeah. wonderful. Awesome. Those conversations, I think, are really valuable um, in themselves for, for clients or potential clients even. Uh, and I definitely encourage people that are thinking, you know, maybe my organization needs to do some work in this space, but I don't actually know specifically what. Um, that's a good time to have those, uh, those conversations with uh, people like yourself or people like me as well, uh, because in the safeguarding roles that, that we do, uh, we can actually help you know shape what it is you actually the organization actually should be working towards so recognizing that you need some external help is um is a very big step but then even if you're not sure what the next step is uh, i definitely encourage people to reach out and have those conversations or start having those conversations at the very least but thank you very much uh, for being my guest today suzanne murray safeguarding and child protection consultant at fairchild safeguarding based in the uk and thank you everybody for listening and we'll see you next time on the Child Safeguarding Podcast. <laughs>